You're listening to West Coast Water Justice, where we talk about water in the Western United States. I'm your host, Natalie Kilmer. And in this episode, we interviewed Jim Walsh and Tomas Morales Rebecki from Food and Water Watch. We get caught up to speed on the oil and gas industry, and we hear about the future of fossil fuels related to our food and water. All right, let's get started. Hi, guys. Hi, I'm Jim Walsh. I'm the policy director at Food and Water Watch. And my name is Tomas Morales Rebecki, and I'm the Central Coast Organizing Manager for Food and Water Watch. Well, it's great to have you both with us. This is the first episode in our series on fossil fuels and the first half of our interview with Jim and Tomas. Can you each tell us a little bit about your background and your work at Food and Water Watch and tell us what Food and Water Watch does for folks who may not be familiar. This is Jim Walsh from Food and Water Watch. I've been with Food and Water Watch now for almost 14 years, working on a wide variety of issues relating to really protecting the human right to water and creating more sustainable food systems. And we partner principled policy-driven campaigns with on-the-ground organizing to build real political power that can result in concrete changes in people's lives and improve the quality of life for individuals all over the country. Prior to working with Food and Water Watch, I was also the program director for a uh, organization called New Jersey Citizen Action, which is a statewide labor and economic justice coalition. And I was also the policy director for Family Promise, which is a national faith-based organization that focuses on uh, some of the root causes of poverty and homelessness. And you said again that you're the policy director? Yes, I'm the policy director. And so in that role, I work with our federal lobbying team to educate members of Congress about the exploitation of food and water resources by large corporations. And that largely, at this point, really involves the factory farming industry and the oil and gas industry, who are some of the biggest exploiters of our food and water resources. Okay, thanks, Jim. Tomas, can you tell us a little bit about your work? Yeah, so I'm coming up on eight years here at Food and Water Watch, and I'm based here in Ventura County on the central coast of California. And my first job out of college was actually doing voter registration, going door to door. And I've worked on Democratic campaigns up and down the state from state Senate to state assembly. And then back in 2014, in my home county of San Benito, we actually got involved with the fight of trying to stop a thousand new fracking wells right next to our newest national park. And that's actually when I met Food and Water Watch. We went out to all these national groups looking for help because we wanted to ban fracking at our countywide level. And at the time, Food and Water Watch was one of the only national organizations that was calling for a complete ban on fracking. But also they gave us support on the ground, helped us win that ballot initiative. Even though the oil industry spent $2 million, we ended up beating them with 60% of the vote. And I've been working with Food and Water Watch ever since then, up and down the Central Coast fighting oil and gas developments in our neighborhoods, backyards, making sure we're protecting our communities and our water from a lot of these dangerous oil practices. Thanks for sharing that. And then San Benito is then the Central Coast? Yeah, San Benito is the northern part of the Central Coast, just a little bit east of Monterey. And it's not typically big oil producing county like some of the other counties in the Central Coast. So it was a big surprise when an oil company in 2014 wanted to put that many oil wells in our county. 
What happened with that? We ended up qualifying a ballot initiative through direct democracy here in California. We collected a thousand signatures and put it on the ballot and the oil industry threw everything they had at us <laughs> trying to beat it. And we outspent 15 to one, but we had the people power in that fight and we didn't have to beat them dollar for dollar. We knew we could beat them door to door. And that's what we did. And we've done that in several other communities too, from Monterey to even here locally in Ventura County. I know there's a lot of oil and gas stuff going on right now in the state of California. Is there anything you want to just clue us into? I think the biggest thing weighing on most environmental justice advocates and many Californians is the referendum going on on SB 1137 right now. The law just passed last year that protects frontline communities and homes and schools and people that live near oil wells. It creates a health and safety buffer zone between oil wells and homes and schools. We've known for, for over a decade the health impacts of living close to oil wells, uh, including asthma, cancer, preterm births. And finally, after decades of fighting for this, environmental justice advocates pass it at the statewide level. But the oil industry, using their massive amounts of money and power, are trying to undo that law as we speak. And we're actually going to have a huge election coming up in 2024 that decides the fate of those health and safety buffer zones. So a lot was put into getting that passed. And we're going to have to do a lot of work to make sure that it passes again at the ballot. Thanks for letting us know about that. So we'll keep that in mind throughout the interview. Okay, so I'd like to just start this out by having you both give us some background information about what's going on with oil and gas, especially in the arid west, not so arid when we're interviewing right now, but if you could help us identify current oil and gas areas and pipelines and who lives there and where the oil and gas are traveling to and from. Over the last few decades, and particularly in the last 15 years, we've seen a massive expansion of oil and gas development in the West, as well as generally across the United States. Massive pipelines running up and down the West Coast. And we also see all of the end uses for that gas as well in terms of power plants. But what we're also seeing is a push to expand the exports of fossil fuels and, and gas out of the country and a, a drive to send more liquefied natural gas overseas, which is particularly a concern when we look at the impacts on water, but also our climate. More recently, we're also seeing a new chapter with the oil and gas industry where they're also in California in particular, but also elsewhere in Western states, uh, we're seeing a push for the development of hydrogen infrastructure and the idea of a hydrogen economy. And what the industry has been doing is taking fracked gas and then processing that through a process called steam methane reformation, in which they actually take the gas from fracking and then compress it in steam. And it causes a chemical reaction for the hydrogen to actually separate out from the methane molecules. And you then wind up with CO2 and hydrogen as a byproduct. And, and that process itself is very water intensive and also very damaging to the environment. We think about uh, hydrogen as a fuel source, burning it is very dirty. It actually increases the amount of NOx emissions 
NOx uh, is short for nitrous oxides. And these are things that make people sick and also contribute to uh, severe health impacts and respiratory illnesses and even death with long-term exposure. And so there's significant concerns with hydrogen development, both from a public health standpoint, but also from a water usage standpoint. The DOE actually, the Department of Energy in the U.S. has a goal of creating 50 million metric tons of hydrogen production annually in 2050, and and we'll be ramping up to that point. That would require a trillion gallons of fresh water. That's as much water as 30. Four million Americans use annually in their their home water use. So we're talking massive amounts of water in areas like Southern California, which are experiencing significant droughts. And along with that comes all of the pipelines and other infrastructure uh, to transport and utilize hydrogen in various sources as well. So just to summarize and make sure I'm understanding what you're saying. They're working on getting hydrogen from fracked gas, and then that process produces more CO2. That's right. Largely, 95% of the hydrogen produced in the United States today is from methane, which is largely produced from fracked gas. And it's hard to see hydrogen as anything other than a new way for the oil and gas industry to market fracking. And it's a new way for them to sell fracking as what they refer to as a clean burning fuel because the hydrogen itself, when combusted, doesn't release CO2. But the whole supply chain of hydrogen production is to the point where it has a larger water footprint than fracking to begin with, but also has a larger climate footprint as well and can actually be worse than burning coal. Uh, in terms of a climate impact uh, for hydrogen. In California and some places in in LA, they're actually talking about creating what is called green hydrogen by the industry. And this is actually using another process to create hydrogen, where they will literally run an electric current through water molecules to separate them out into hydrogen and oxygen. But it is a significant, a large amount of water that is necessary to do that Where would this facility be in LA and where would they get the water? Because most of LA's water is imported from other parts of the state. These are all very good questions that LA's council has really not addressed in any meaningful way uh, about where the water will actually come from. LADWP, Los Angeles Department of Water and Power, are the ones who are pushing this proposal along with utilities and fossil fuel interests that would like to see this build out of a hydrogen economy. And they're proposing to use this hydrogen in existing gas-fired power plants to produce energy for residents of Los Angeles. This is a very inefficient use of energy. When you think about the energy it takes to produce hydrogen, it would be better to just use that energy itself to directly power the grid. You can, in some instances, lose up to two thirds of the energy that you produce uh, that would otherwise be utilized in just direct use of fuels rather than actually producing hydrogen and utilizing that hydrogen. And what kind of energy are they using to create the hydrogen currently? 
95% of the hydrogen in the U.S. is produced from fracked gas. You're using energy from fracked gas to turn fracked gas into hydrogen. Well, why? What's the point? Most of this is being driven by one massive federal subsidies that were created in the Inflation Reduction Act for hydrogen production. There's also additional money that the Department of Energy is considering putting out for what are called hydrogen hubs. Uh, There's up to $8 billion the Department of Energy will spend to create these so-called hydrogen hubs that will foster uh, hydrogen infrastructure in different regions of the country. And the oil and gas industry and utilities like hydrogen production because it keeps their existing infrastructure running. If you are a big utility who owns power plants, you would have to turn them off if we were to start requiring them to provide clean renewable energy instead of fracked gas. They can market this by blending hydrogen into existing gas-fired power plants and say, now we're using clean burning fuels. When in reality, they're just playing a shell game to dupe policymakers and the public into thinking they've created some sort of new magical clean source of energy, when really they're just doing the same thing they've been doing. I'm trying to think about this creatively. Could there be a way we could capture methane and turn it into hydrogen power from sources like cow manure or landfills? I know that the infrastructure is not there yet, but could this be a better solution than fracked gas to methane? You raise a really important point. And, you know, something else we're seeing happen is the development of biogas infrastructure. And this is largely happening now at factory farms across the country, but particularly in the Central Valley of California, where we're seeing massive amounts of public money going to support the development of manure digesters at factory farms. This is causing significant problems for water usage because one, factory farms are very energy intensive. And so if we are then creating biogas at factory farms, we're actually encouraging the development of more factory farms. And we're assuming that that methane that is produced at factory farms is a foregone conclusion. When we know that we can actually lower the footprint, greenhouse gas footprint of our agricultural system by actually stopping the development of factory farms and phasing them out. But the factory farming industry and big utilities are pushing to increase biogas development, which provides new revenue streams, encourages even larger farms to be developed and even more consolidation to increase methane production at these these facilities. And so if you were to take that biogas energy from factory farms and then turn it into hydrogen you'll be further enriching the same industries that are causing a significant climate impact, poisoning the water and air of communities near these factory farms, and allowing them to greenwash it in the process and pretend like they're creating some sort of climate solution, when in reality, they are further exacerbating the climate crisis. We're going to take a quick music break and we'll be right back. 
That was Smash Up the Radio by The Pleasure Kills. Let's get back into it. Just to tie it all together, it sounds like hydrogen is unfortunately the future of fracking. At least that's the direction policy is moving. So if you could circle back and fill us in on how our existing oil and gas infrastructure all works and what would it look like if we're also building out hydrogen? Definitely. Yeah, here in California, we always, people think California is a very green state, but we used to be the third largest oil producing state. We've now dropped down to six because other states have been picking up their production through fracking and other extreme extraction methods. But just here in the West, in the US, New Mexico is number three in the country. Obviously, North Dakota and Texas are number one and two. But we have a lot of the top oil producing states too, with number four being Colorado, five, Alaska up to the north, and then number six here in California, seven, Wyoming, and 10, Utah. So like I said, here in California, we have this image of being a very green state, but we've produced a lot of dirty oil, not oil that we're even burning for cars here. And that's been the oil industry's argument. Well, we need to drill for it here or else we're going to be bringing it in from somewhere else. But California, a lot of the oil here in California is actually crude oil that gets used for bunker fuel or asphalt. And we actually have to export it to other countries because it's so dirty. We can't even use it here because of our low carbon fuel standards that we have here in California. So a lot of this oil that we're drilling here in the Central Valley, where the majority of fracking and oil drilling is going on in California, Kern County, also LA, here in Ventura County too, we're number three top oil producing counties. And a lot of this oil here is thick as peanut butter, as as I've been saying, and it needs fracking or cyclic steam and these other extreme extraction methods that brings this dirty energy out of the ground. We take it to a refinery and then export it out of this country. And actually the US, we talk a lot about, we need to drill more and become energy independent, but we're actually the largest exporter of oil and gas. And we've been growing and growing over the past decade. And this all started under the Obama administration when they lifted the ban on exporting crude oil. So the more oil that we're drilling here in California, especially in these areas where it's dirty oil, it's not benefiting us. It's using our water. It's dirtying our air, polluting our environment for future generations. And we're just sending it to some other country so they could burn it because they have lower standards for this dirty oil. So we talk a lot about we need to drill more, especially with the war in Ukraine and oil and gas prices going up. But drilling here is not going to solve the problem, especially when we're exporting large amounts of this dirty fuel to other countries. Did you say the U.S. is the largest exporter of oil and gas? Yes, we actually, in 2021, became the biggest. We're bringing in oil, too. We're using other countries' oils and shipping oil out at the same time, too, because it's a global market. As soon as it hits the refineries, We really don't know where that oil from Ventura County goes exactly, but we do know that it's going out of this country, especially the dirtier stuff that we don't use. So how would the oil differ from, say, Kern County to Ventura County? Yeah, it really depends on the oil field. And a lot more of that lighter crude is in Kern County. And they use a lot more fracking in Kern County, too, because the geology is better for that. Here on the Central Coast, like I was saying, we have a lot more of the dirtier, heavier crude. Some of it is even tar sands. Uh, here in Oxnard, we have the Vaca tar sands. And these oil companies are literally drilling at these tar sands using steam to bring it up. And all these chemicals are coming up with that wastewater. And for sure, we're not using that here for our oil, for our gas tanks. So 
So it depends on the region. Even here in Ventura County, we have certain oil fields that produce a little more of the lighter crude. But overall, especially here in the Central Coast and in California, we are not producing the oil that we're using to drive in our cars. Can you fill us in on some of the details about how fossil fuels are transported in the state and the infrastructure that's needed to make that happen? Yeah, it's a very complicated system. And even locally, we don't really have a, an understanding of what pipes are where because some of these are hundreds of years old. The smaller pipes, we do track the bigger federal interstate pipelines, but on a local level, it's really hard. Uh, we learned that during the Thomas fire that a lot of the fire department didn't even know where some of these oil and gas lines that were over 100 years old were very dangerous. So here, yeah, we need to transport the oil from the oil fields to the refineries. And there's several ways to do that through pipelines is obviously one of the major ways on rail, also very dangerous as we've seen in so many accidents and just recently in Palestine, Ohio, uh, down in Long Beach and in LA area too, there's, there's refineries there that where it gets refined and shipped off. Uh, to get it there, we have long pipelines, we have trains. But like I said, there's so much unknowns with these pipelines and there's so many ways that they could be broken. As we saw here in Santa Barbara with the refugio oil spill, it was actually a pipeline that was coming from offshore drilling. So we had a pipe coming all the way from an offshore oil rig. The spill actually happened on land because the pipe was old and corroded but it leaked right back into the ocean. And that's how we got that massive oil spill back in 2015. Just recently too, off the coast of Southern California, a ship hit an oil pipeline on the bottom of, of the ocean. So there's so many pipelines that we don't know uh, how old they are, if they need maintenance. And there's a lot of other departments or other entities that don't know that they're there and end up creating disasters. So yeah, there's a lot of different ways to transport it to get to these refineries and then ship it abroad. But all these ways are dangerous from driving on our roads with oil trucks on our rail and oil tankers to even these pipelines. I'm imagining there are regulations to identify where the pipelines are. I know I've gotten mail informing me that I live in an area where there's pipelines, but I don't actually know where the pipelines are. For example, if I was gardening, is it possible I could hit one of these pipelines? How deep are they? Do these pipelines cross waterways? Are there regulations about all this? Or is it just kind of the Wild West? Yeah, it really depends on what jurisdiction it's under. Like if it's a federal one, if it's going interstate lines, if it's local, yes, definitely. If you are going to be <laughs> digging anywhere in your backyard, you call your local gas utility and they should tell you if it's safe or not to dig in that area. Those are well-tracked. It's the other pipelines, like I was talking about here in Ventura County, that have been here for decades, even over 100 years, and they're going from old oil wells that have been abandoned to the tanker. These pipelines are not tracked. Even after the Thomas Fire in 2017, the county required staff to do a more thorough investigation and actually get more of these pipelines mapped out. It's been over five years. We have not seen any movement on this study. So we can have a lot of great regulations on paper too, but unless they're getting uh, legislators actually going forward with making sure that this work gets done, it doesn't get done. And the problem is just growing worse. Are there any resources you can direct listeners to so we can learn what fossil fuel infrastructure is in our community? 
Yeah, there's a couple entities. There's the Pipeline Association for Public Awareness, and you can usually find stuff for like local pipes like that. I've been tracking these during the SoCal gas compressor station fight, and those are the pipelines you really got to worry about, like the big high-pressure gas lines that are going to feed huge infrastructure like the gas compressor here on Ventura's west side. Those are the same kind of infrastructure that blew up in San Bruno back in 2010 and, and killed several people. So those huge uh, high pressure gas lines are the ones you really worry about. And those are definitely tracked and you can find out where they run. It'll scare you sometimes too. It's like running right next to our school or our homes. So just so I know what you're talking about when you say compressor lines, are those really large pipes with fracked gas? Yeah. So a natural gas compressor with natural gas and methane running through the lines, they need to keep the pressure so it can come from the oil field. It can get to your house and you get to your stove. They got to keep the pressure level that requires either adding pressure or relieving pressure from the system. So at each stage of the pipelines, there's usually these, these massive compressor stations that have huge horsepower, practically jet engines. And they're very dangerous because they give off toxic chemicals on a regular basis. They literally have to leak and let out this methane. But also there's been plenty of explosions at these facilities because of the high pressure and because of the natural gas in the area. So these are dangerous facilities too. And here in Ventura County, SoCal Gas is actually trying to triple the size of their gas compressor right across the street from an elementary school in an environmental justice community too. And usually these are miles away from population centers because of the danger. And this gas compressor has had decades of leaks and violations on top of that. So gas compressors are definitely a huge problem for many communities throughout the U.S., um, but especially here in Ventura County, we've been really trying to fight that. Well, I'm wondering, because we didn't really talk about who lives in these communities. I mean, from all the water research we've done in other episodes, it's usually black and brown communities that are basically being discriminated against. It's like systemic racism. Is that kind of the same case with these gas lines? Exactly. That's that's the common thread in a lot of these environmental justice issues. The communities that are impacted the most, the frontline communities are always black, brown, and indigenous communities too, and low-income communities throughout the country. And it reflects that here in California, where over 90% of the oil drilling is in Kern County and the Central Valley. And overwhelmingly, it's next to Latino communities, low-income communities, communities of color. And here in Ventura, we have this gas compressor. Like I said, there's no other gas compressor in California that is this close to any population center. But the fact that it's in a community that's over 70% Latino, the fact that it's been there for decades, it's just a legacy of environmental racism. It's taken a lot of organizing from these frontline communities to get a lot of these regulations passed, like health and safety buffer zones between oil wells and homes and schools. And even here with the gas compressor, we've actually passed huge statewide laws as a result of fighting this. The state utilities have passed better regulations. So projects like this in the future don't just get approved right away. But it really takes organizing, speaking out and making sure that decision makers follow through with these policies to really protect our communities. Yeah. Do you want to share the name of this school in Ventura? It's E.P. Foster Elementary, and it's actually a couple blocks from where I live. And I have two young children, too. And (laughs) my daughter was supposed to go to that school last year. We've been fighting it for over two years and we've delayed it. It would have been built two years ago. But yeah, the community has spoken out. We've unanimously gotten all of our elected officials to speak out against it. Fight's not over. It's just getting started. But we've really done a lot 
to change policy even statewide. Are the hydrogen lines more combustible? Yeah, the hydrogen infrastructure hasn't really been built yet. This is a vision that oil and gas industry has put forward, which we're trying to stop. Uh, but hydrogen poses significant risks to communities that are, are distinct and different from our methane pipelines. Hydrogen is more combustible than natural gas. It's very unstable. And it also leaks. And the leaks are really important because we know the methane infrastructure is leaking throughout the process, some deliberately, some accidentally, but there are leaks constantly happening in our methane infrastructure. And methane is a very powerful greenhouse gas. Hydrogen also contributes to global warming. Hydrogen has a global warming potential of 33, whereas CO2 has a potential of 1. Hydrogen is 33, so significantly more global warming impact from hydrogen. The methane leaks uh, through cracks in, in infrastructure, gaps in where pipelines come together, and hydrogen being a much smaller molecule will leak probably in more significant amounts. But we don't have good, reliable data to show how much that hydrogen might leak. If there is a, a leak that catches fire, you may not know it as well from hydrogen because hydrogen burns very clear. And so you may not even see flames. And where the infrastructure exists right now, the primary use of hydrogen in our economy currently is for refining oil. And so the oil refineries are predominantly located in low-income communities and contribute significant pollution to low-income communities. The power plants that are proposing to burn hydrogen either on its own or mixed in with existing fracked gas also are disproportionately located in low-income communities and communities of color. And so by bringing hydrogen into the energy sector and, and supporting that development, what we're doing is increasing the lifespan of these dirty fossil fuel power plants. We're subsidizing, literally through federal tax dollars, the development of a tool that the oil and gas industry uses for refining oil. And this is all at a time where the oil and gas industry is experiencing record profits, but yet they are, are taking advantage of significant taxpayer subsidies uh, for hydrogen production. And, and we're in the midst of an effort to build out even more of this dangerous and dirty infrastructure. How are they planning to transport the hydrogen? So there's a push right now to utilize hydrogen in existing natural gas pipelines and mix it up to a rate of 20%. And this is something we're seeing happen all over the country. There are concerns that mixing hydrogen or using hydrogen in existing gas infrastructure can actually lead to embrittlement of pipelines, weakening those pipelines that could potentially lead to more ruptures down the road. There are also concerns with how this might be used in people's homes as well. So if you mix it into the current gas infrastructure and people have a gas stove or a gas boiler for hot water or heat in their home, uh, they're also getting the emissions from burning that natural gas, but also would get the emissions from burning hydrogen. And we actually see hydrogen blending into existing natural gas pipelines can increase NOx emissions by six times 
you know, NOx are the pollutants that lead to particulate matter and also to ground level ozone. Uh, the oil and gas industry is pushing for this use of hydrogen, uh, despite the fact that we have well-documented evidence that it will further exacerbate air quality issues from the fossil fuel industry in general. Okay, thanks for going into that. So it sounds like hydrogen would mostly be used in oil refineries, but then also potentially in homes and to power the grid for electricity. Currently, their number one use of hydrogen is for oil refining. The vision the oil and gas industry has, though, is to build out a hydrogen economy. And this hydrogen economy is largely a way to market fracked gas, to continue the use of fracked gas through a new medium called hydrogen that would be uh, utilized in our homes, in our power plants, in our vehicles, and anywhere else the industry finds that they can make money on selling this. And they're doing this despite significant concerns about the climate impacts, the public health impacts, and the environmental impacts that we will see from hydrogen development itself, but also from continuing fossil fuel infrastructure and development, which is intimately connected to hydrogen production. We're going to take a quick music break and we'll be right back. It Will Never Be by Strange Cities. So what you're saying is that the oil and gas industry is marketing this as a newer, cleaner technology. But at the end of the day, it's still fracking, only less efficient, more dangerous, and there's significant federal money to back it. So just how much money are we talking here? The the federal government is providing uh, billions of dollars in public support for hydrogen development that was passed in the Infrastructure and, uh, Investment and Jobs Act, as well as the Inflation Reduction Act. And these are two big infrastructure bills that passed Congress in the last couple of years. And this was largely done at the behest of the oil and gas industry. And so the industry is proposing to use uh, hydrogen for a transportation fuel. We know that direct electrification is more efficient than producing hydrogen to then create energy to fuel something versus just running our vehicles on clean, renewable energy to begin with. And so this is being done not just to create new markets for fracked gas, but also to undermine the technological solutions that we need to get off of fossil fuels and to reduce our dependence on fossil fuels and all the pollution and and problems that come along with them. From what I've been reading, the fossil fuel industry is using a lot of new extraction techniques that the public is having 
a hard time keeping up with and regulating. Another kind of climate scam they're pushing is this idea of carbon capture and storage. And the idea is that we would capture carbon dioxide from combustion at various power plants and industrial facilities, and then transport that carbon dioxide via pipeline to permanent underground storage. In reality, what is happening is that the oil and gas industry has been able to get the federal government to provide lucrative subsidies for the capture of CO2. And then the vast majority of these subsidies go to supporting a process called enhanced oil recovery, where the oil industry will literally take captured CO2 and pump it into a oil well that is no longer producing because of lack of pressure and use that CO2 to squeeze out every last bit of oil out of a well that would otherwise be unable to produce. And then getting subsidized for what the federal government is claiming and the oil and gas industry claims is a climate solution. When in reality, what we've done is subsidize a new drilling technique that will extract oil that would otherwise be trapped deep within the earth. And that oil will then be burned and have its own climate impacts as well. It's really a major scam that the fossil fuel industry has been able to move forward under the guise of climate solutions. Okay, yeah, I've heard the term carbon capture. I guess I thought it sounded a little better, but it doesn't sound great. It sounds warm and fuzzy. (laughs) Exactly. The best carbon capture is a tree because like like we're we're talking about too, because this just solidifies and exacerbates the already ongoing environmental injustices and environmental racism. Even here in Oxnard, where we have three gas-fired power plants on the coast, they're in a majority Latino community right next to homes and schools. So if we extend these power plants that are supposed to be decommissioned soon, the community is still suffering from all the other pollution that is coming off from that. And it's not 100% effective. So it's really going to delay a lot of the decommissioning of these power plants that are in communities that are impacted the most already. So it's not the best solution. The best carbon capture is nature and is a tree. Okay, so this Oxnard power plant runs on fracked gas. Exactly, fracked gas. Majority of it's yeah coming from out of state and it's fracked gas. And yeah, we have three of them. They're actually trying to build a fourth. But over three or four years of fighting, the city and a lot of local groups were actually able to stop that fourth gas-fired power plant. And that would have made it the only coastal city with that many gas-fired power plants. And like I said, too, we, we already experienced so much other pollution from pesticides, from the oil wells, and it's just the cumulative impacts. And we don't need to be moving in the direction to extend these power plants in these communities. For sure. So maybe you could tell us a little bit more about what chemicals are being used and some of the long and short-term effects. And uh, you've talked a little bit about the evolution of drilling in the oil and gas industry. I keep hearing about how regulations having a tough time keeping up because you were talking about how we're injecting stuff back into the earth. And then that's probably pretty close to water aquifers. The chemicals used in fracking are largely proprietary, where the oil and gas industry is able to prevent the public from knowing what chemicals they're actually using in the process. 
And this is particularly concerning because there have been you know, some industry reports of self-reporting and you know, a, a lot of different surfactants, antimicrobials, and other chemicals that really aid in the breaking up of rocks deep within the earth. And what's concerning is even if they were using purified water and nothing else in it to send down, what we've actually seen happen is the wastewater that comes back up is worse than what got sent down there to begin with. And that's because there are heavy metals and radioactive elements and other harmful elements deep within the earth that have been trapped there for millions of years, literally, and are now coming back up with this stream of wastewater. What's also concerning is that wastewater from fracking and in oil and gas development in general is actually exempt from the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act. And, and this is a federal law that basically says polluters who generate hazardous waste are responsible for managing that waste from cradle to grave. And the oil and gas industry has been able to, since the late 80s, get all waste products from oil and gas drilling to be exempt from that law. So th this waste, even though it contains heavy metals, whatever proprietary chemicals were sent down the well to begin with, radioactive elements in some instances, is not actually considered hazardous by the federal government. And so they are taking literally our water and destroying it. That was Food and Water Watch's Jim Walsh and Tomas Morales Rebecki, part one. Tune in next time to hear the second half of this interview. Thank you so much, Jim and Tomas. The views and opinions expressed in this program do not necessarily reflect the views or opinions of Save California Salmon or any entities mentioned. You've been listening to West Coast Water Justice. Produced by me, Natalie Kilmer. Subscribe and listen wherever you get your podcasts. The music is from the album Now That's What I Call Surf by Tony Bald, Adam Anigias, and Danny Snyder.